What a depressing way to start our morning here today. <laughs> that is a clip from the hit movie from the year 2000 starring George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg with a really nasty goatee uh, called The Perfect Storm. And it's based on a true story of a fishing boat called the Andrea Gale. Anyone ever seen this movie or read the book? Uh, on October 27th of 1991, Hurricane Grace formed near Bermuda and moved north toward the coast of the southeastern United States. Two days later, as Grace continued to move north, it encountered this massive low-pressure system coming down from Canada, and the cold air from Canada mixed with the warm air from this dissipating hurricane created this new storm that they weren't expecting. And they were out on the water, and some reports have waves anywhere from 40 to 100 feet tall, huge, massive waves, and unfortunately, the Andrea Gale and its six-member crew were lost at sea and never found because they got hit by what some people have called the, the perfect storm. And so question for you, and maybe some of you have, have just gotten back from the, the beach, or maybe some of you are going on vacation soon to see this. Have you ever stood before an ocean and gotten that sense of its raw, chaotic, untamable power. You know that feeling when you're standing before the open sea? It just feels big. There's not many things that will make you feel quite as insignificant as standing before. An, I mean, it's, like, it's, it's almost like the ocean is alive. The, the waves just keep whipping, and it's constantly moving. And the sea is intimidating enough on its own. But when you add a storm to the ocean, you realize how powerful this thing actually is. It becomes really intimidating. We, we can't even fathom the kind of power that's produced just through storms in nature. A, a fully developed hurricane can release heat energy that is the equivalent of a 10 megaton nuclear bomb exploding every 20 minutes. Isn't that amazing? I mean, despite all of our advancements in technology and all of the things that we create, we st still can't create something to capture even a tenth of the power of one of these massive hurricanes that end up forming. In, in 1993, the World Almanac reported that the entire human race used energy at a rate of 10 to the 13th power watts, which is, equates to about 20% of the power of a single hurricane. 20%. The entire human race used this. And so, despite all of our advancements, we still can't control the weather. Despite all of their best attempts, meteorologists, weathermen still can't predict the weather, right? What, what an incredible job. You get to be wrong all of the time, and they'll put you on TV, right? 
But in our text today, we do see someone who has authority over Mother Nature. We see Jesus who can speak to storms and raging seas, and he stills them with just a word, just by speaking. And the question that hovers over us this morning, the question that hovers over our time together, is the same question that the disciples asked at the end of this story that we're going to tell this morning. And the question is this, what kind of man, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is Jesus? Where did he get this kind of authority and what does that mean for us? That's our, that's our talk. Let's pray. Bow your heads with me. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come into this space today. We pray in the name of Jesus that you would come, that you would mess with us. We don't want to come to this time lightly, Lord, and so we come reverently. We come before you, Jesus, as the body of Christ, the church, gathering together, not to, not to meditate on, on simple platitudes or to sing words that, that are set to rhythms, Lord, but to worship the name of Jesus the God of all authority. And so we pray that you would just swim around in this room today, God, that you would mess with us, that you would change us, and that we would not leave here the same. Speak to us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open them up, if you would, to Matthew chapter 8. We're, we've been in this series on the Gospel of Matthew, and, and we started back, actually, last December, and we're going to continue chugging through this Gospel for a while now, and it's broken up into these amazing parts, and, we'll, and, and we, we think it's really powerful to teach expositionally through books of the Bible so we can get a sense of the message or the theme that God is trying to communicate. And we just finished this section in Matthew where Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. This is, this is Jesus' Magna Carta on the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a part of God's kingdom? What does it mean to embrace his ethos, his value system? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. And now we're in this section where Matthew is trying to authenticate everything that Jesus has just taught. He's trying to say, Jesus just taught us some things. Jesus has just proclaimed some things about who he is. And I want to show you why we should listen to him. That's what Matthew 8 and 9 are about. Remember, the theme of this book, the theme of Matthew, is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Messiah King. He is the long-awaited Messiah that everybody had been waiting on, and we are interested in his inaugurated kingdom, his ethos, his values. What does it look like for us to follow him? And so Matthew 8 and 9, Matthew carefully arranges these chapters to convince us that Jesus has authority. Jesus has authority. And in these two chapters, what, what Matthew presents are these three cycles of three miracles followed by a short teaching. Three miracles followed by a short teaching. Here's kind of what it looks like. Cycle one started in Matthew 8, 1 through 17, where there were three, three healing miracles that were, that were shown to us. And, and what they're trying to show us is that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. And then there's this little teaching on what does it mean to follow Jesus right on the heels of that? We've talked about that the past couple of weeks. And then there's the cycle, too, where there's these three miracles that demonstrates Jesus' authority over nature and over demons and even over sin. He has the right, the authority to forgive sin. And then there's a short teaching. And then three healings that, that show Jesus has authority over even death. 
And so what Matthew is doing is he's reminding us, hey, this guy is not just someone who, who, who he's not like all the other teachers who just says things. He can back up what he says. He is who he said he was. And so Jesus has authority. That is the theme of these two chapters. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. Here's what it says. And when he got into the boat, the disciples followed him. Interesting little phrase there, right on the, the heels of, of a teaching on what does it mean to follow Jesus. And behold, a great storm on the sea arose so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And, he went, and they, they went and woke him up and saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm, and the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is God's word to us. Amen? Amen. So this is one of those famous stories in the Bible. Many people know this story. Many people understand this story. This is one of those stories, and the reason why we all know this is this is one of those stories that's mentioned in each of the synoptic, each of the synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, each give an account of this story. And as we read it, it kind of sounds like a myth, doesn't it? I mean, this sounds too fantastic to be real. It sounds like one of those bedtime stories that someone tells you that has some great moral about how Jesus will calm the storms in your life and everything will be okay. And it sounds too fantastic to be real, right? But here's the thing. As you read this account here in Matthew, but, but also in Mark and Luke, and you put it together, this doesn't read like a myth. This reads more like a memory. This reads more like someone recounting something that they saw. Let me give you an example. In, in Mark's account from Mark 4, there are things that are mentioned, these minute details that have nothing to do with the overall theme or main message of this story. He mentions things like, there were other boats on the lake that day. has nothing to do with the story. He mentions that Jesus grabs a cushion so that he could fall asleep comfortably. Jesus picked up a pillow so he could sleep comfortably on the boat that day. He also mentions that, that Jesus, quote, went as he was, which means Matthew, Mark is telling us Jesus decided he wasn't going to change his clothes before he got in the boat that day. And we've got to ask the question, why are all of these things mentioned in this story? Why are these things? There, there's no point to them. There's no purpose. They don't add to the mythology. They don't add to the overall theme of the story. What is going on here? Well, the fact is that, that writing from this time, fiction writing or myth writing didn't really add silly little details like this into stories. In fact, scholars will even tell you that it wasn't until the last 200 years or so that fiction writers began to write in these silly little details that create the illusion of reality. Nobody cares what George Washington was wearing when he was chopping down the cherry tree, right? By the way, that, that, that's a myth that, actually, that didn't actually happen. We only care that, that myth ends up pointing to the fact that George Washington said, I could never tell a lie, right? Communicating something about who this great leader was. Nobody cares what Jesus is wearing. Nobody cares that he didn't change clothes. We just care that, hey, is this a guy who can calm storms or not? But this isn't a myth. This is a memory, in fact, in Mark's case, this is probably Peter's memory. Peter recounting the experience that he had while he was in the boat that day. Really interesting. And so, the Sea of Galilee, 
um, is notorious even today for these same kinds of sudden and violence. Has anyone ever been to the Sea of Galilee in this room? I've never, I want to go, so will, will you take me with you? Can we go together? Let's go to the Sea of Galilee together. It would be amazing. I've never been, but I'm told that it's not, uh, it's not a large body of water. It's relatively small. It's about 13 miles long and about seven miles wide. Uh, but it's deep. It's about 150 feet deep at its deepest point. And not only that, the, sh- the shoreline sits at about 680 feet below sea level. And so it's this small body of water, but it's deep, and it sits really, really low. And there are these mountains and hills that surround the Sea of Galilee. And because of this unique terrain, cold air from the mountains, like Canada— can swoop down into this lake, and the warm air from the lake will mix with the cold air from the mountains, and these sudden and furious storms can form pretty rapidly. Storms like this still form today, and and I've read accounts of waves like this even today uh, being 20 feet high on this little lake. Pretty crazy. And as we examine this story about Jesus on this boat that day, Jesus calming the storm that day. The first thing that I want to point out here is the authority of Jesus. If this is Matthew's main point, if this is what Matthew is trying to get us to walk away with, we need to talk about authority. It takes a unique person with unique authority to do what Jesus does in this story. And what Matthew's trying to get us to see is, hey, Jesus is unique. He's different. There's something different about him. And there are, there are two Greek words that comprise the idea of authority. The first word is dunamis. Dunamis, which is where we get the English word dynamite. It, it, it's this explosive authority. It's this power. This is the kind of authority a storm might have. This raw power and energy. This, this explosive ability that you would have to insert yourself or exert yourself on someone or something. This is also a word that's often used to describe the power of God. Acts 1.8, it says, you will receive dunamis, power, the power of God when the Holy Spirit comes on you as you pray in the upper room. This, it describes the power of God. 2 Corinthians 12.9, it says this, my grace is sufficient for you for my power, my dunamis, is made perfect in your weakness. When you are weak, when we are weak, he is powerful, explosive power like dynamite. In fact, his power is perfected in our weakness is what this passage goes on to say. So that's the first word, dunamis, dynamite, explosive power. The second word to describe authority is this word, exousia. Exousia, and this word is unquestioned authority that is tied to a person's position. Someone who has authority because of the very position that they have. This is a a king's authority to rule over a kingdom. This is a judge's authority to declare a verdict over people. This is a parent's authority to tell their kids to go to bed. Any parents ever have to do this? My wife was gone about five days this week at a women's conference. I had to exert this kind of authority multiple times. Go to bed, right? And this is not a kind of authority that you argue with, despite my kids' best efforts. This is not a kind of authority you argue with. This is, this is a kind of authority that you submit to because you are the boss. You are the king. You are papa. I'm going to listen to you because you have authority. This is the word that's 
listed at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, actually. At the very end of Matthew 7, it says the people were amazed. The people were amazed because Jesus taught not like the teachers of the law, but he taught as someone who had authority, someone who had this authority because of his power and his position. This is also the word that's used earlier in Matthew 8, the famous words of the Roman centurion, the centurion who is praised for having faith unlike Jesus had, had ever seen in Israel. And the centurion said this, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed, for I too am a man under authority. I'm under authority. I understand what authority is. I can see authority in someone. Just say the word Jesus. And Jesus is amazed by his faith. It's going to be an interesting contrast between that centurion's faith and the faith of these disciples on the boat later on in this text. And so it's, it's Father's Day. Um, hopefully all you dads get to go home and take a nap today. That's in the plans, right, moms? But because it's Father's Day, I have a sports illustration to hopefully help us understand this, this idea between these two kinds of authority. I, I read it this past week from a pastor named Brian Loritz, and, and here's what he said. I thought this was good. He said, in the game of football, those with dunamis, explosive power, are the 300-plus-pound linemen who, at any moment, they could put someone on their back and knock them out for the season. That is dynamite power. That's explosive power power. He said, but in football, ultimate authority, exousia belongs to the short, pudgy men donning black and white striped shirts, the referees. In a moment's notice, the referee can blow the whistle and send the 300-pound lineman to the sidelines, drastically changing the direction of the game. You see the difference between these two kinds of authorities? One is positional, one is explosive and it's when Jesus stands up and rebukes the storm, what he is demonstrating is his exousia, his authority that he has by the merits of the position that he occupies as Savior, Messiah, and King. And when Jesus stands up and he calms the waves, it's often translated as peace, be still. And, and you get this picture of Jesus' hair blowing in the wind and he's wearing a, a blue sash and everything is really pristine and calm. But, but the, the impetus of the Greek here, probably it, it, it should be translated as more like sit down and be quiet. That's what he said to the wind and the waves. Sit down and and be just like a parent who is disciplining the rebellious child, Jesus stands up and says, Shut up, sit down, and be quiet, and don't move until I tell you can move. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> <laughs> and it tells us when he rebuked the storm that the winds and the waves obeyed him. They died down, and there was a great calm. Notice we go from a great storm to a great calm, and the thing that's in the middle of those is Jesus, a person. And so the storm went from this, these waves that are rocking the side of the boat, this wind that is blowing, it's being swamped and thrown over. It's like a great earthquake to this, and just a word, calm, crystal, pristine. And it's really interesting because you, you might say, okay, the wind would stop the wind would stop, and uh, maybe that was just a coincidence. Maybe he just said stop, and the wind just kind of died down at that moment. But the interesting thing that's happening here is not only did the wind stop, 
but the waves stop. Have you ever been on an ocean after a storm? How long does it take for waves to stop churning and, and crashing and, and making those, those massive white caps that they sometimes make? It takes a little bit, right? But at a word, crystal glass. And so it, it, the winds died down and it was calm immediately. No struggle, no argument. Jesus didn't have to speak some incantation. He didn't have to pray some prayer to some sea god. It just obeyed him. Now, we need to ask ourselves, what is the significance of this? Matthew has put this here for a reason. Why is he telling us this? Why is he communicating this to us? In, in the Old Testament and in Jewish writings, the sea, the ocean, is portrayed as this place of darkness and evil. N.T. Wright says, The sea appears as the primal element, the dark substance out of which and in opposition to the creator God who makes his beautiful world. The sea is untamed chaos. It was the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters of the deep at creation, bringing order to chaos. It's uh, in, in Revelation 13:1, the dragon, the serpent, Satan is pictured coming out of the sea uh, to begin his, his, his fight during Armageddon. And so the, the evil ascends out of the sea. The sea is this place of darkness. One more. Revelation 21:1 says, "In the new heaven and the new earth, the sea will be no more." You ever read that, read that and think, "Man, I kind of want oceans in heaven. I mean, that's kind of lame. It's not saying there aren't going to be these great bodies of water in heaven. It's saying that all of the evil, all of the chaos, all of the darkness that the sea represents will be vanquished forever by Jesus. He tames the waters. And the Old Testament is really clear. Only God can do that. Only God can tame the sea. Psalm 89, 8 and 9 says, O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea, and when its waves rise, you still them. And so what Matthew is doing, is doing here is showing us that Jesus has the authority to calm the seas. And if you're following his logic, he's saying because Jesus has the authority to calm the seas, Jesus is God, because only God can do that. Jesus is the one who overcomes darkness. Jesus is the one who vanquishes the beast. Jesus is the authority. This is the first and primary meaning of this text. There are other secondary meanings about Jesus calming the storms that we'll get to here in a second. But if you miss this, you miss the, the point of this passage. It's big Jesus, small everything else. Jesus is the authority. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what, is this, what does this mean for us? I think it means this, if the wind and waves obey Jesus, so should we. He, he, he's talking to his disciples about the cost of following Jesus. They follow him into the boat, and he says, let me give you an example. The wind and the waves follow me, will you follow me? The wind and the waves submit to me, will you submit to me? And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, what part of our lives have we not submitted to the authority and to the rule and reign of Jesus? I think we all have something. We're all in this progressive 
sanctification, this being progressively made holy. There's some part of you and some part of me that is like a rebellious child that will not go to bed and needs to submit to the authority of the one who can calm storms. What is that for you? Is it something that you need to remove from your life, some toxic relationship, some substance, some addiction, some thing that you're participating with that is pulling you progressively away from God? Or is it something you need to add? There are many of us who, who were kind of in this neutral space and we think that's good, but you need to actually add something to your life in submission to this God. You need to add a more active participation in his kingdom, in his body, on this earth. You need to exercise your spiritual gifts. You need to be in relationship with people who will hold you accountable, ask you tough questions, pray for you, push you on in your relationship with him. What do you need to add in submission to Jesus? Because the difference between the wind and the waves and you and me, human beings, is that we are made in the image of God, and because of that, we get a choice. We can choose to obey and experience life, or we can choose to disobey, and our life will be the storm at that point. What needs to submit? Next point that I want to talk about as we examine this passage is this, the reality of following Jesus. Sean talked about following last week. What does it mean to follow? And, and again, it's fitting that, that immediately after that teaching, they get into the boat. They follow Jesus. Verse 23 says, when Jesus got into the boat, the disciples followed him. They followed him. Here's an object lesson for you. And disciples here is probably referring to the 12, maybe not all of the 12, because we, we haven't seen Matthew called yet, but, but most of the guys are kind of with him at this point. They're in the boat, and the boat they would have gotten into is, is something like this. This is a Galilean fishing boat. It's not very big, but it would have been big enough to accommodate Jesus and his disciples and some of the fishing nets that they had that day. And we're told that Jesus was so tired that when he got into the boat, he grabbed a cushion and he went into the stern, which is in the back of the boat for you land lovers out there, and, and he fell asleep. He was so tired from all the ministry that he just fell asleep. Have you ever been so tired that you just want to take a nap? And he did this despite the fact that the trip from one side of the lake to the other only would have been about an hour to two hours, but he was trying to get some rest in, and they set sail, the disciples launch the boat, and they get out on the water, and it's at this point that we hear a sudden and furious storm descends upon the sea and upon the boat. And the Greek term here for this storm is really, it's kind of fun to say, so I want to share it with you. It's this term, megas seismos, megas seismos, which means big earthquake. It's seismos is where we get the word seismic. And, and, and what Matthew's trying to communicate here is this is not a typical storm. This is a unique storm. This is a big storm. This is a storm that's so bad, the waves are crashing. It's kind of building these walls around the boat. It almost feels like we're in an earthquake. Everything is shaking. Everything is chaos. I can't move. I can't think. We're going to die. We're going to die. The danger is imminent. And the amazing thing about this mega seismos is that while this whole thing is going on, while this whole thing is happening, Jesus is still asleep. I love this part of the story. He's just snoozing in the back of the boat while water's coming in. The disciples are freaking out. 
And some commentators think that, 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 this, that this is demonstrating a Christology of Jesus' humanity. He's human just like you and me because that he needed to take a nap, so he took a nap. And I think that's a plausible explanation here, that he is a human and he did need sleep just like us. But I think he's trying to communicate something different here. He's trying to give the disciples an object lesson. He's trying to tell them what he thinks about the storm. And, and the first thing I want to point out here as we think about this is that sometimes, and, and, and I think he's trying to communicate this to his disciples, he just talked about the cost of following Jesus, and now he's trying to show them that sometimes Jesus leads you into storms. Sometimes he is the one that leads us into the storms of life. Let me say it another way. Being a Christian in no way incubates you from storms in your life. Sometimes he's the one who actually leads you into the storms. I don't think he always is the one who leads us into storms. Sometimes he just allows storms, like Job. You guys remember Job? Satan had to come and ask permission from God to to do the things that he was doing to Job, but God allowed it for Job. And and sometimes he he redeems storms. He, He doesn't always lead us into the storms. Sometimes he allows them, but sometimes he just redeems them, like the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph is unjustly thrown into a pit, sold into a slavery by his brothers. He ends up in prison in Egypt. And by the end of the story, Joseph says, what you intended for evil, God made good. At the very least, God will redeem all of our storms. He is sovereign over the storms in our life. But we have to acknowledge that there certainly is a category, and it seems to be what the disciples are experiencing here, where God is the one who leads us into storms. The Apostle Paul shipwrecked three times while following Jesus. Church history, countless examples of, of Christians who were martyred, not despite, but, but because they were following Jesus. Psalm 23, the, probably the most famous psalm, right? It says, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Meaning, just like a shepherd leads sheep, God, you lead me. And this is beautiful when it talks about leading me beside still waters, in, in, in quiet waters, and green grass. And we really like that part. But do you know where that psalm ends up? Leading me into the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes God leads us into storms. We have to recognize that. We have to, we have to acknowledge that. Why? Because there is a dangerous belief system out there called prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel that says that if you follow Jesus, that means your life's going to be great. Your life's just going to be great. You will have the best life. You'll have the best life. You, you, you'll be healthy and wealthy and happy. You'll never have problems. And, and if everything's not great, then something's obviously wrong with your faith. You need to give more or you need to, to do more or you need to believe more or you need to buy this prayer rug for $39.99 on our website. And this is a dangerous ideology because if you believe that God never leads you into storms or allows storms, what will happen when a storm comes? It'll devastate you. It'll crush you. You'll think that because I'm experiencing a storm, God must not love me. God must not be with me. And nothing, nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. Is theology important? You better believe it. 
What you believe is important. Theology just means what you believe about God. Is theology important? Yes. If we believe that God never allows storms, then we will be crushed when they come. Instead, we have to acknowledge what the whole Bible teaches. Over and over and over again, the Bible teaches that the storms of life, the trials of life, are the gymnasium that God uses to strengthen and train and develop our faith. That's where he grows our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. It is in the trials and the storms that God grows and stretches and perfects our faith. I could go around the room, and if I pulled each one of you and asked you, what are the times in your life when you grew the most as a person, when you grew the most in your faith, and every single one of you would tell me a story about some hard thing that happened in your life that God used to make you into a a more competent, more responsible, more believing follower of Jesus. Yet the American mindset tends to be, I have to avoid suffering at all costs, that suffering is the worst thing for me, that I've got to strategically plan my way out of suffering, that I've got to spend my way out of suffering, that if I could just avoid suffering, life will be great. Uh, Newsflash, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't avoid the storms. They're coming. They're coming. In fact, Jesus says that he sends them sometimes as an invitation to you for you to grow in your faith. We don't learn faith when we're comfortable. We learn when we are given increased opportunities to trust Jesus. That's where we learn faith. That's where we grow. And so the disciples hit this panic moment, and they call out to Jesus, and they say, Lord, save us. We're dying. We're perishing. And it's kind of funny here in the Greek. It's just three words. It just says, Lord, save, perish. Lord, save, dead. Lord, save, we're dying. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us the disciples add, do you even care? Do you even care that we're about to die? Isn't that the question we always ask when when a storm comes? God, God, do you even care that I'm going through this? Do you even care that we're going to drown? Do you even care that I'm suffering? Do you even care that our children are struggling? Do you even care that we can't afford to pay our bills? Do you even care that we're being eaten up with disease? Do you even care? That's the question we ask. And then Jesus, he wakes up and he rebukes the disciples before he rebukes the storm. And I think he does it really gently here. I think it's a gentle rebuke because he uses the same word that he uses in Matthew 6. Matthew 6 where he says, do not worry. If I take care of the birds of the air, I'll take care of you. And then he says, oh, you of little faith. Same word here. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He's not saying they have no faith. He's just saying that there's something that's not quite developed in their faith. Their faith is still missing something. In fact, that word afraid is probably better translated, why are you being cowards? Why are you being cowards? You of little faith. And and that's why I think that the opposite of faith is not doubt. Sometimes we think that doubt is, 
is the opposite of faith, that, that if you doubt, that's the opposite. But the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's fear. Fear is the opposite of faith. In fact, fear is just another kind of faith. It's just faith in the wrong thing. And in this case, the disciples had more faith in the power of the storm than they had in the authority of Jesus. And they had some faith, right? I mean, why would a group of expert sailors go and wake up a carpenter's son to help with boat trouble? So they believed something about him, but it just wasn't quite there yet. And what I think Jesus is saying to them when he rebukes them is, is this, do you understand who's in the boat with you? Do you know who's in the boat with you? Do you know who I am? And obviously, they don't quite know who he is yet. They don't get it. The centurion got it. The centurion who's praised for his faith got it. They didn't get it. Oh, you of little faith, why are you afraid? I'm in the boat with you. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Uh, Isaiah 43, 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Don't be cowards. Have confidence. Why? Because I'm in the boat with you. And if I'm in the boat with you and I'm not worried about the storm, you shouldn't be worried either. You shouldn't be worried either. The one who has ultimate authority and power and ability to calm the storms is in the boat with them. And what he's trying to say is, you don't get who I am yet. And so question for us is, is what storms, what megas seismos are hitting your life right now? Everybody's going through something or you've been through something. God has either led you into that or he has allowed it or you better believe he will redeem it because he's trying to help you grow in your faith. He wants, you, he wants to see you grow and to be perfected in your perseverance, like it says in James. Last thing I want to share about this passage as we end here this morning is what I'm calling the beauty of Jesus. Hidden in this story is something very beautiful that I want to point out. Uh, A lot of the commentaries I read, a lot of the study that I did, pointed out some astounding similarities between this story and another story in the Bible. You guys remember the story of the prophet Jonah? Jonah and Jesus. There's some amazing similarities here. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus was on his way to the Gentile side of the lake. He's going to cast some demons out of a demoniac. They're going to go into a pig. Uh, and, and just like Jesus was on his way to the Gentiles, Jonah was going to some Gentiles too. Remember, he was going to the people of Nineveh to share God's message of his grace and mercy, asking them to repent. If you know the story of, uh, of Jonah, you know that like Jesus, when Jonah got into the boat, he went into the part of the ship where he could fall asleep because he was so tired. So Jonah slept, and as Jonah slept, a furious storm, same word, overtakes this ship, just like it did with Jesus. And just like it did with Jesus, the sailors in that story, they began to panic. They said, we're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Do you even, prophet, wake up. Do you even care that we're going to die? And when Jonah wakes up, he sees the peril of his situation, and he acknowledges that God sent the storm 
because of his disobedience. His disobedience led him to run away from God. And and so Jonah says the only way to stop the storm, the only way to calm the storm, the only way for this to, to go from mega seismic storm to great calm is if you throw me into the ocean, sacrifice me, and we know that Jesus, the, 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 the storm that he faced, it wasn't on, a, on this lake. It wasn't on Galilee. The storm that he faced started that night when he was in Gethsemane. And he began to sweat blood in fearful anticipation of the storm that was about to come. And we know that it wasn't Jesus who slept that night. It was his disciples who slept. And they slept to the point where Jesus went to them and he said, Do you even care? Do you even care? Can you not keep watch with me for an hour? And we know that he was arrested that night, unjustly tried, and the next day Jesus was thrown into the waves for you and for me. Jesus says the only way to stop the storm, the only way to calm the sea is to throw me in. And it's not for my disobedience, it's for yours. Jesus was thrown into the ocean for us on our behalf. That's why Matthew gets to Matthew 12, and he says, Jesus is a prophet greater than Jonah. He is a better Jonah. He did not emerge from the belly of a fish. Jesus emerged from the earth, conquering sin and death forever. This is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the invitation that he gives us. He is the God who has authority to calm storms. He's the God who cares enough about you to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's the God who sacrifices himself for you, being thrown into the waves for you to pay for your disobedience. And the invitation today is the same invitation the disciples had. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. The invitation is to faith, a greater faith. What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? He's the God-man, and he's inviting you to trust in him today. There is a famous hymn that was written by a guy named Horatio Spafford, called It Is Well. You guys know the song. And the words of this hymn, as it is told, was written as he was passing over the area of the ocean where four of his daughters died in a boat crash. He wrote the words to this song. This devastating storm that happened in the primordial darkness of the sea, he wrote these words that say, when peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like seas billow roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul though satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God who calms the storms. But Lord, I thank you more than that, that this this 
text is not about me and that my life is not about me. It's about you. It's about how big you are, how mega you are. The storms are small, their power is small, and your power is great, and you can calm storms, and you can walk with us through darkness and valleys of the shadow of death, and we can trust you. And so I pray this morning, if there are those in this room who have not trusted you with their storms, that they would let go of the white knuckles that there's a lot of pain we experience in this sinful, broken world, but we can remember that we have hope in you, the God who walks through fire with us, that took on flesh. So we trust you today, our God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.